questions. I think this one for me is the one that um, I think is the most personal. Uh, the first question is probably the one that most people are feeling the weight of. How can I have uh, peace in an anxious world? It's been an anxious year. But I feel like this one gets really deep. This one is where, if you're really honest with yourself, there's a, there's a deep cry in all of us to get the answer to this question. I really believe that um, whether you are a regular here, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, that there is something really important that Jesus wants to be saying to you today. There's an invitation um, for a kind of relationship that answers that question that he wants everyone to come face to face with. And, and in order for that to happen, um, he's got to be doing that. I'm speaking, but I'm really going to ask God to help uh, me so that he can speak through me. So will you join me in prayer? Um, and let's really just get ready for God to, to, to do some business with all of us here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are alive. And right now, we pray that people will meet you that the deepest longings of our hearts are found in you. And we may not be convinced of that just yet. We may not be willing to be vulnerable to you just yet. But I pray that right now, even as I open up this part of the Bible, that as I talk, that you will, by your Spirit, be meeting each and every heart, wherever they're at. That especially those who've been longing to find a love in spite of all that we've done and all that we are, to be loved so deeply and accepted so freely just for who we are, that they'll find that in you today. So please do this in Jesus' name. Amen. William Thacker was a unsuccessful small bookshop owner. He owned a little travel bookshop that really didn't sell many books in the uh, region, the district of Notting Hill in London. And every man's dream uh, comes true for him that day when Anna Scott, who is the world's most famous actress at the time, Hollywood superstar, walks into his shop. Now, uh, she walks into his shop, looks around, buys a book, but then she leaves. But that's not it, because a few minutes later, he's carrying some orange juice, uh, runs around the corner and spills orange juice all over her shirt. Um, he feels bad. He invites her over to his place so she can get changed out of her, her dirty clothes. Um, as she leaves, though, quite spontaneously, suddenly, um, she kisses him. And that kiss turns into this unlikely romance between superstar Hollywood Anna Scott and ordinary schmo William Thacker. Now, eventually, they get to know each other better. The relationship blossoms. But as you can imagine, if you're going to have a relationship with the most famous actress in the world, it's not going to be easy. Um, of course, talking about the movie Notting Hill. Who's seen it? It's kind of an old movie. It's like two decades old. It's actually one of the best romantic comedies you will ever see. And it's on Netflix at the moment. So if you haven't seen it, I watched it with my kids last night. That's how much I love this movie. Anyway, towards the end of the movie... Um, she, she's just broken his heart, all right? She's totally broken his heart. Months pass, but then she walks into his shop and she comes to ask William, played by Hugh Grant, to give her and their relationship another chance. Now, at this point, and my son was watching with me, he was like, shocked because he says no to her. And he was like, where's that happy ending, right? Um, he surprisingly, he says no, because, you know, he's had his heart broken before. He can't risk having it broken again. Now, I want to show you the clip. Very famous little segment. Just have a look um, on the screen. That really is real, no, is it? 
I live in Notting Hill, you live in Beverly Hills. Everyone in the world knows who you are. My mother has trouble uh, Hang on, there's a bit of a, a lag, I think. Um, really David, you might really have to much. actually show it not as a part of... Can you just open... The I live in Notting Hill, you live in yeah, you have to not, Hills. We, sorry. We Everyone have to, in the world knows who you are. Pause! My mother. <laughs> you actually have to show it um, separately to um, the program. You actually have to... Yeah, imported, it doesn't really work very well. It is? It okay. Can we start again? We might not have enough RAM on this <laughs> computer. That really is real, no, is it? I live in Notting Hill, you live in Beverly Hills. No, nah, it's not going to work. Everyone in the world knows who you are. My mother has trouble remembering my name. Oh, this is going to... This is gonna so sad. I see it. Fine. Fine. Good decision. Good decision. All right, okay. You know what we're going to do? Um, can, we, can we blank the screen and just hear the audio? Can we try that? Okay, so start again. Just imagine it, okay? Because it's actually the audio that's more important. Yeah. Should have tested this. I live in Notting Hill. You live in Beverly Hills. Everyone in the world knows who you are. My mother has trouble remembering my name. So just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. All right, that's the bit I wanted you to hear. <laughs> it's actually one of the best lines of any romantic movie. I'm only just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. There's a deep longing in all of our hearts to be loved and accepted just as we are. I mean, for Anna Scott, played by Julia Roberts, it's to be loved for the real her behind all of the beauty and success that she has as a celebrity. Who's going to love her just for her? For us, it's a bit different. I mean, for us, it's, it's, it's not about being beautiful and successful. It's sometimes even in spite of not being as beautiful and successful as we'd like to be, we also want to be loved for the real us. Uh, there's a pastor and writer, his name is Tim Keller. He writes this, have a look at the screen. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved, well, that's our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is what we need more than anything. Now, that bit that Jeff just read for us, that bit from the Bible in Luke chapter 7, is a historical account. This actually happened. An encounter between a woman who everybody knew but no one loved, an encounter between her and Jesus, who we find out knew her fully and yet loved her fully and accepted her completely. And as I said earlier, this same Jesus is going to be inviting you and me into that kind of relationship, that kind of love. So we're going to 
walk through this dinner party, though, in a little bit of a, a kind of in-character sort of way. We're going to enter into this dinner party with Jesus. If you're wondering where I'm up to on the handouts you got, I'm up to point number one. And the best way I think of appreciating it is sort of pretending that we are one of the characters in this dinner party. So you've got here Simon. He is the name of the host of the party. Uh, he was a well-known public figure in the community. And we know that because of his, uh, well, firstly, he hosts the party, but we also know that because he's a Pharisee. Now, Pharisee in Jesus' day were respected, well-known, honored people in their community. They would have been like your um, Order of Australia Medal recipients, okay? People knew them, people loved them, people respected them in the Jewish society. Simon holds a dinner party for Jesus, but it wasn't like any old dinner party. Um, a lot of people then had, people respected in the community, had what were called kind of public dinner parties. Now, that doesn't mean that all of the public, anyone could come and be part of the dinner. No, 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 not everyone was a guest, but the doors would have been open to the public. So the point is you had the guests eating and drinking, but then the public could come in and they could sit around the outside of the room or the, the edges of the room the, near the walls so that they could observe and hear the conversations of what was going on with the actual guests of the party. And so I want us to pretend we're one of those public people. You've just walked in the door. You see a group of men and they're reclining around a table and they're on these couches because in Roman days, uh, they didn't used to eat sitting down on chairs. They reclined on couches. And this is how they would do it. The table would be in the middle and each couch would face the table and, and their feet would be outwards. It'd be like spokes on the wheel, if you know what I mean, okay? All of their faces towards the center, all of their feet to the outside. But you're there, you're on the outside of this circle because you're sitting by the edges of the room. So imagine that you're sitting there, maybe chairs there, and, and here's the center of the table, spokes of the wheel, sort of couches everywhere, but you're sitting there and you're watching, observing this dinner party take place. Now, here's the thing. It's not just unusual for us because, like, who's ever been to a dinner party like that? Um, but uh, also because there were things going on there that you had to be, um, you had to understand their cultural norms to pick up some of the codes, all right? Uh, you you, you got to learn how to decode some of the things that were going on. Because in first century Middle Eastern culture, there's a lot of things that they, they think and do differently to us. Um, and the key to this passage, to understanding what was going on here, is to understand in the first century Middle East, their culture was an honor-shame culture. All right? You know what I mean when I say honor-shame culture? It's actually part of a lot of Asian cultures as well. And that's actually the key to the passage. And if you know how to decode some of the honor-shame things, you're really going to understand what was going on. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a Chinese restaurant and uh, you're there with your family and it's often happened when we were young. And then you see um, towards the end of the meal, your mom and your auntie are there at the, uh, uh, at the, at the, the, the register and they're having a little fight. Have you ever seen that before? Right? Not like a full-on fist fight or anything. It's kind of a friendly fight, but they're kind of like pulling each other's bags and, you know, someone whips out a credit card and, 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 and one of the other person kind of puts their hand down and pulls out their credit card. And they're like fully having this argument. It can go on for like 10 minutes, right? And now if, you, if you've been in that situation, you're not going to call the cops on them because you know how to decode that situation, right? You know what they're doing is, and if you're not familiar with this, what they're doing is they're fighting for the bill. And this whole show of fighting for the bill is part of the cultural norm. Because in Chinese society, like the one I grew up in, there's an honor-shame society as well. And so if I'm fighting over the bill, 
because um, I, I want to pay for you because I want to honor you. And, and if I manage to let, get you to let me pay for you, it also honors me because you're giving me faith. And so everyone's kind of fighting for their bill at the end of the meal. That's a cultural code in an honor-shame society. So you're a guest in this dinner party and you walk in. And you're very aware of the cultural codes of the day, of the honor-shame things. And so you're aware that Simon, he is an upstanding, respected community leader. And so he has honor. And he is inviting Jesus, who at that time was a bit of a minor celebrity, a respected teacher. And he invites Jesus into his home because he wants to give honor to this local celebrity. But also it looks good for him. He receives honor from having the celebrity in his home. And that's the reason why it's a public party. That's the reason he's opening his home to the community to come and watch. Because it now enhances his honor as a leader of the community. See what's going on? It's all about honor. And so at this point, you might be thinking, well, that's looking good. Simon's done what's expected of him uh, in his position, trying to honor a local celebrity and, and getting some honor in return. Everything is good, right? Well, not really. Because here's the thing, as a guest, you would have noticed that there were some key things missing. And we find this out later on in in, in the story that Luke 7 tells. You see, when Jesus, the supposed honored guest, arrives, and you're there observing um, him arriving and all the guests saying hi to each other, maybe you got there early, Um, Simon greets Jesus, but the greeting you notice immediately was a little bit cool. It wasn't the warm, friendly, Middle Eastern kiss that you would usually greet someone you genuinely welcomed. It might have been something like a bit of a cooler handshake or something like that, but it wasn't a kiss. And you also notice that when Jesus arrived, and it would have been a long, hot day that had just got in the Palestinian sun, it's dusty and they all wore sandals, so their feet are dirty. He wasn't offered some water to kind of freshen up, to either wash his own feet or more likely to to have someone um, like a servant from the household come to wash his feet. As an honored guest, you would have expected that to happen. Uh, He wasn't given any kind of fragrant oils that often they did that to freshen up with as well. I suppose today you'd probably give guests hand sanitizers, you know? So you get a sense at this dinner party, well, it's not quite what you expect, not quite the warm reception as maybe it was a test. You get a sense that Simon's there, he's putting it up as a, like the host of the party, but he's putting Jesus up, maybe in front of the community, and he wants to, as the leader of the community, representatively see if this Jesus was legit. Now, that could have been a very awkward situation at this point, because if uh, you withhold honor, then you, you, you kind of give shame instead, and Jesus could have made it really awkward by pointing these things out right at the beginning. But he doesn't do that. He takes his place at the dinner party, and so everything continues to roll on, and and an awkward situation at that point is avoided. But then as the night proceeds, you see, all of a sudden, something way more shocking. Because a woman enters through the open doors. And when you and the other guests notice this woman shuffle in, you all automatically have this kind of double take. You look twice, because you can't believe that she would come. And immediately a hush overcomes the whole room. Because you know who she is. Everyone knows who she is. She's also a bit of a celebrity of sorts, but not the kind of celebrity you'd want to be. In an honor-shame culture, she has no honor whatsoever. 
Because what she has done with her life, what the community whispers about she does for a job perhaps, is so shameful you wouldn't tell your kids about it. She's the kind of person when you see across the road, you would go deliberately to the other side of the road to avoid. And if that wasn't enough, you see her come in, and, and there's a hush, no one's saying anything, everyone's kind of jaw is on the ground, metaphorically, but she's approaching, remember, there's open doors, you're on the edges, there's the center, that's where all the honored guests are. She approaches that center ring of couches with the men reclining, uh, head towards the middle, feet outwards. Every eye is on her, and she then goes right up to Jesus, and then she kneels by his feet. And then you see her do a series of what could only be understood in the day as absolutely shameful things. Firstly, she's crying. And not just the kind of trickle of tears. Um, the word there is heavy, sobbing, weeping. It's, it's a flow of tears. It's, it, and, and she's at Jesus' feet and her tears running down her face, going onto his feet. There's a shameful lack of self-control, isn't there? And then as that's happening and she's crying and weeping all over her feet and his feet are getting um, streaks of tears on it, she then does, does this thing that, again, is, is, is really shameful in his culture. She undoes her hair. Right? Respectable women leave their hair tied up in, those day and age, in that day and age. Only prostitutes and the sexually promiscuous like to have their hair out. She undoes her hair. And as the tears are running down off her face onto Jesus' feet and splashing onto his feet and she's crying and sobbing, she uses her hair to begin wiping his feet. And as if that's not enough, she takes out this jar of perfume. And it's not the cheap kind of oils mixed with some fragrances that, you know, that the, the, the host of a party might have offered to a guest to freshen up with. No, this is an expensive jar of perfume. It's worth a fortune. Even the container would have been worth a lot of money. And you see that and you can only imagine why she would have need for perfume like that. Or where she would have got the money to buy perfume like that. And then she opens that perfume, and immediately the smell overcomes the room. It's intoxicatingly beautiful smell, but it just makes the whole situation even more strange. You've got the perfume smell at the same time as this weeping, sobbing woman with her hair out, wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And she takes out the perfume, and then she pours it all over his feet as she's wiping her hair on his feet, and then she starts kissing his feet. Now, firstly, the whole thing about feet, all right? In the ancient world, only the lowest of slaves would have been the ones washing feet. So that itself is a very shameful thing, reserved for the lowest of slaves. In the ancient world, even married men and women would not hold hands in public. And here she is, a shameful woman who led a shameful life, putting her hands all over the feet of this single man. And if that's not enough... We, you see her begin to start kissing Jesus' feet, like as if it could get any more intimate than that. And the word kiss there isn't just the word of, of you know, kind of a little polite peck of a greeting. It's the kind of kiss mums and dads give their kids after they've been away for a week at camp. You see them after a week away and you're like smothering them with kisses. 
That's the kind of kisses she was giving. All over his feet, tears, perfume, hair. In the cultural code of the day, you're watching this and you know that every single taboo is broken. In an honor-shame society, there could not be any worse examples of shame. Now, coming back to us for a moment, here in Australia, we, we're not in an honor-shame society, we, we know that, but we don't have to be to understand shame because while we don't maybe get the honor part, shame is, however, a universal human experience, isn't it? Now, I, I don't know if you're aware how shame has been classified by psychologists and counselors and mental health experts as one of the root causes of some of the most crippling mental health problems. So psychologists will distinguish between guilt and shame. Do you know the difference between guilt and shame? So guilt is um, tied to specific behavior. I, I did the wrong thing. Right? I'm guilty of acting badly. It's, it's behavior. Shame, though, is much more than that, isn't it? Shame is tied to your entire self. How others see you, how you see yourself. So with shame, it's not I did the wrong thing. It's I am a failure. It's not, I did a bad action, it's, I am bad. Shame makes you think, I am worthless. And because of shame's intensity and pain, we want to get rid of it, right? It's natural human self-defense. But we'll often do it in unhealthy ways. So because of shame, we'll try to shift hurt, to the hurt that we're feeling, we'll shift it to others. So anger and abusive behavior are often motivated by shame. Or feelings of despair and worthlessness may lead us to self-harm, even suicide or suicidal thoughts. Or shame can often be a, a major cause of addiction, addiction to drugs, to gambling, to alcohol, to sex, because you're trying to numb the feelings. But here's the funny thing, right? As you do that, you feel more shame and it sends you into a deeper shame spiral. And you go even more into the addiction to escape the shame that causes more shame. Now, you may not have gone to that degree, but among a group this size, there will be some here you've experienced something of, of how deeply shame has impacted you. And by the way, if that's you, and, and some of what I said, particularly when it comes to self-harm or addiction has been triggering, just please know that um, we'd love to be able to, to chat to you and pray with you today. Because these things are really painful and they can cause such deep wounds for so long. We'd love to come and chat to you and pray. Just come and see us afterwards. But even if you've not experienced shame and, and its effects to that degree, I think we all have areas of our lives, don't we, that we actually would feel ashamed of. And we understand the feeling that shame makes us want to run away because shame means that, well, if you knew me as really I am, as I see myself, you wouldn't want anything to do with me. So my natural tendency with shame and your natural tendency is to hide. Shame, you see, is the reason why we edit our social media posts. Shame is the reason why we only want to show the best side of ourselves. Because God forbid people should see me as I really am. How I really look. How my life really is. What I really think of my friends. If you really knew me, you would reject me. So I've just got to keep pretending or keep hiding. 
Now, that's just for us, and we're not even in an honor-shame society. So you can imagine, for Jesus' society, this woman and that, those guests at that time, that would have been amplified to the max. This woman had every single reason to hide, yeah? She had every single reason to hide. But this is the surprising thing. She does the opposite. She does the opposite. She, in fact, holds nothing back. She's completely open. She makes herself completely vulnerable. If anything, it's actually the host, Simon. He's the one who's holding back, yeah? Remember, he, he puts on a show, but he's actually withholding true hospitality. He doesn't offer true warmth, true friendship to Jesus. He's holding back. She doesn't. And you've got to ask why. Why would he, who was already seen as honorable, want to hold back, while she, who in everyone's eyes was shameful, not want to hold back. She had every reason to hide. He had no reason to hide. She doesn't hide. He does. What is going on here? See, this is the question of why. And the answer is because something is powerful enough to interrupt even the deepest shame. And I'm up to my second point. So you're there and you're observing all of this. And at the point at which you, every inclination of your heart wants to just stand up, walk out because of what's going on here. At that point, Jesus stops and speaks. And so everyone listens. And he tells a story, a parable, a story with a hidden meaning. Now he's directing it at Simon the host because Simon, right, is the first to comment. If, if this guy knew who this woman was, you know. He wouldn't have anything to do with her. Well, he talks to Simon, but remember, everyone is listening. You're there as well. And the simple story with a simple message is this. Two men owe money. One owes the equivalent of a car loan. The other owes equivalent of a home loan. All right? It's sort of like difference between 20000 and 200000 Although some of you are thinking, I wish my home loan was only 200000 All right? But they both have their debts wiped clean. And Jesus asked the question, who's going to be more grateful? The one who was, right, relieved of a $20,000 debt or the one who was relieved of a $200,000 debt? And even Simon knows the answer. Of course, it's the one with the greater debt cancelled. And Jesus says, this is exactly the point he's trying to make. Because that's what's happening with this woman, remember, compared with Simon. See, why is it that Simon the Pharisee the respected, honorable community leader, why did he hold back? Why did he just do what was honorable in the eyes of those around him, but it was more concerned about how it made him look and afraid to give himself completely to honor Jesus? Versus why, in comparison, this woman held nothing back. Why was she, who had so many reasons to hide, able to let it all hang out, literally and metaphorically, why didn't she care about what other people thought? Why was it that she, at this point, gave everything of her love and appreciation to Jesus and honored Him in the only way that she knew how, which is with the most expensive thing that she had in her possession? Why? Because, says Jesus, she has been forgiven much. Right? That's the point of the story. 
because she has been forgiven much. Now, you need to note there, Jesus says there um, in sentences 47 and 48, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, that she has been forgiven much. It's really important you notice that is not in the present tense. Jesus isn't saying she is forgiven much or she will be forgiven much, future tense. It's actually in what's called the perfect tense, which is a kind of past tense, something that's happened in the past. Or you literally, it's she stands forgiven, all right? She has been forgiven. She is in the state of having been forgiven. Something has happened in the past. And that's really important because it means that there's a hint of an unknown backstory. We're not given the backstory here, but Jesus is hinting at the fact that he probably already met this woman before. We don't know when, we don't know how, but he already knew her. That he had already met her He already knew of her shameful past. He already knew of her reputation. But he had already forgiven her. He had already pronounced that in his eyes and therefore in God's eyes, she was free of her shame and guilt. And so she had already experienced Jesus' full acceptance. She had already received his love that was a love that even though he knew what she was like, still loved her for who she was, accepted her. And that's why when she came in that day, it wasn't to do something in order to earn Jesus' forgiveness. It was to do something to express her gratitude at the forgiveness she had already received. That's why she held nothing back. That's why her face was full of tears. I gather it wasn't tears of sorrow as much of tears of gratitude and joy at being in the presence of Jesus who loved her so much. And she wanted to honor him in the only way she knew how. And it was at this setting, in this community, even with all the other eyes looking at her. But she didn't care what other people thought. You know, the Bible says that Jesus is God come in human flesh, and that God, our Creator, knows us better than we know ourselves. You know, a wonderful part of the Bible called the Psalms, which are really a collection of songs and poems. The writer says this, look at it on the screen. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. A bit later on. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The Bible says that you can't hide from God. He is not fooled by your Instagram posts. He's not even fooled by the image of ourselves that we may put on at church. And here's the thing, if all of us, without exception, if all of us would be horrified, if even our closest friends and family really knew every dirty and dark secret of ours, well, how much more do you think we would want to hide from a God who sees us and knows us like that? Especially once you understand that God is perfect and pure and only ever beautiful and good and righteous. Every stain gets shown up in His presence. And your natural inclination is, i got to run away from that. Because to be known like that is terrifying. 
And maybe this is the reason why you've been running away from God or running away from church, even if you used to have a church background, perhaps. But here's the thing, and this is what Jesus is bringing to us today. Because Jesus is saying to you, you may feel like you need to hide from a God who knows you like that, but you know what? You don't need to. You do not need to hide, not from me, not from the God who knows you fully and yet loves you fully. Because just like he loved this woman and accepted her without embarrassment and without shame, Jesus wasn't embarrassed of her. He wasn't embarrassed to have his feet washed by her tears and perfume poured over and her hair and her acting in, in, in such an intimate way and kissing his feet. He wasn't embarrassed, right? He knew what she was doing. He knew her and he accepted her. And because he's able to do that for her, he's able to do that for you and me. Because you see, Jesus has done everything to erase her shame and to erase your shame, and to erase my shame. No matter how much shame has kept you caught and stuck, maybe the whole of your life right up to this point, Jesus has done everything to erase it. Now, you've got to know in an honest shame society, you can't just erase shame by pretending it didn't happen, just ignoring it. If you did that, you would actually bring shame on yourself, okay? You can't just sweep it under the carpet. It doesn't work like that in an honest shame society. It also doesn't work in our society. Right? Can you imagine the courts giving a light sentence to someone who's an abuser? Uh, you think about the family where the, the husband this week, heard about that? Right? Killed his own three kids and his wife, his ex-wife. He kills himself, of course. But imagine if he survives and the courts just gave him a slap on the wrist. How would we think? We'd be like, shame on you, justice system, Right? What kind of a justice system will let a man like that walk with only a light sentence? And if God was just to pretend that guilt and shame didn't matter, it would call into question his justice and would bring shame on him. It would call to question his honor. And so you can't just erase shame by pretending it doesn't happen. No, no. To restore honor to someone who has acted shamefully, you actually got to pay a price. Shame needs to be accounted for and dealt with. And either the person who's done the shameful thing has got to pay it, or in the case of Jesus, he's willing to pay it for you. You see, Jesus can erase shame because he willingly took the place of shameful people like this woman, but also like you and me. Do you know the next time Jesus is kissed will be at his betrayal the night before he dies? Do you know the next time Jesus is anointed or has fragrant oils poured on him is going to be at his burial just before his body is put into the tomb. And there's a reason why Jesus died on a cross. Have you ever thought, why did God choose for Jesus to have to die on such a terrible instrument of torture, the cross? It's not just because of the pain. The Roman cross was seen as horrible in their day and age because it was ultimately an instrument of shame. Because, you know, a person dying on the cross was the worst of criminals. If you were to die a more honorable death, it would be by beheading. Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. Only the lowest of slaves and rebels got crucified. And when you were crucified, you were hung there for hours, where in public 
Why? So everyone could see you. Everyone could walk past you. And you know what? You see those paintings of Jesus on the cross and he usually has a loincloth on. He would have been naked. People were crucified naked. And so you would walk past someone getting crucified and you would understand that this was an instrument of shame. You would walk past them. You would spit on them. You would hit them. You would punch them. You would laugh at them. And that's what Jesus endured for the entire six hours that he was on the cross. Because it was an instrument of shame. It's the reason why he did that. It wasn't because he deserved it. It was because we deserved it. He did that in our place as our God because he loves us. Even though he knew all the things you would do that brings you embarrassment and shame, he still loved you. And he was willing to take all of that and bear it on your behalf because only he would know you fully and love you fully. The Bible says that Jesus is alive today. Now, I know that's a big claim, and if you're still investigating Christianity, that's a huge claim, and it's not going to be here and now that we're going to be able to investigate whether Jesus really rose from the dead. Is that a historical thing? Was that a, a fictional kind of uh, fanciful hope that Christians have? That's something that we want to be doing and investigating as something like fresh, and we will. But if it is true, just for a moment, take the Bible's claim as true that Jesus is alive today, and He really is God come as a man then this is great news, isn't it? Because the same one in this story who offered this woman full acceptance and love, no matter what she was like and what she did, he is still able to make that offer to you and me today because he is alive. He is offering the same kind of fully known and fully loved love to you today. I asked you at the beginning of this to find yourself in this story, in this account And so in response, I'm going to say that there's actually three groups of people here today that will correspond to three main characters or groups of characters in this story. And so you may want to find yourself in one of them. The first group is the crowd. Remember, the people sitting on the edges observing what's going on. That may be you today. Now, you're observing this encounter. There's something that fascinates you about it. But you still need more information to make up your mind. You need to find out whether Jesus stands the test of truth, whether the Bible stands the test of history. And if that's you, I want to invite you, as as Dom did already, as Dong did already, to come to Fresh. Because it's actually that kind of setting that you're going to be able to investigate. All right, our three big question series are over, but Fresh is only just about to begin. Don't waste the opportunity to take a few Tuesdays night out in March. And if you can't make it to all five, just come to as many as you can because it'll really help you be able to investigate and test out some of these big claims. But that may be, you may be happy to, to, at this point in time, just remain on the outside to look in as the crowd. But some of you might be the second group of person, and that is you're like Simon the Pharisee. That is, you know Jesus. You may even be religious. You may be one of our regulars who've been coming as long as Leanne has for the last five years. But you may not have ever experienced what it's like to really love Jesus and be loved by Jesus. And so that's why you may be religious but distant. I mean, you may do the right things at church or group, small group, but you're distant in your heart. You've never really even let your guard down with God, never really allowed Him to come into your life. You've never surrendered everything and said, just take it all. I'm not embarrassed. Take all of my shame and guilt and take it all, and here's all of my gratitude. 
right? You've held back. And sometimes it's the religious in Jesus' encounters who held back the most. That may be you. Well, today, if that's you, Jesus wants you and is inviting you to shift, to become the third character. And of course, the third important character here is this woman. To be someone who is fully known and fully loved. He's inviting you to come to him with all of your guilt and shame. I mean, he knows it anyway. He's inviting you to confess it, to say sorry for it, and to trust that he, by his death for you, can completely erase it. And he wants you to live the rest of your life in the sphere of his unbelievable love for you. Because if you experience that, let me tell you now, for the first time, perhaps in your whole life, you can know a love that will free you from the burden of shame and the exhaustion of having to pretend and hide all the time. It makes you tired, doesn't it? It does, right? You can never let your guard down. You're always worried about what other people think of you. You're always comparing yourself to other people around you. You're too embarrassed to let the real you out. Well, if you know the love of Jesus who fully loves you and knows you and accepts you, all of a sudden you're free from that. I showed you that um, quote earlier. There's a, the fuller quote goes like this. Have a look there. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Jesus is inviting you today, whether you came as a crowd or as Simon, to now identify with the woman. And if you want to take up his offer, and he's right now knocking at the door of your heart, and he's saying, let me in. Let me love you like this. Receive me. Let all your guard down. Let me come into your life. Then there's a prayer that I'd like to offer for you to pray with me. It's actually on the inside of the handouts you got when you came in on the bottom right hand. It's not a magical prayer. It's also on the overhead. But it's the kind of things you need to say to Jesus if today you want to accept what he's done for you and want him into your life. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead us in praying this prayer. I'll pause between each line. And if you want to echo it in your heart as a sincere prayer that you can say to Jesus, it won't be all of us, right? But it may be you today. Then why don't you do that in the quietness of your heart? I'm going to ask everyone to just kind of bow and look down so you're not looking sideways. So no one's self-conscious that they're the only one wanting to pray it. But if Jesus has moved in your heart and today he has made that offer and you're like, yes, I'm ready to be fully known and fully loved, then why don't you pray with me in your heart? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I admit that I am guilty and broken before you. There's so much that I'm ashamed about. But you died for me in my place for my shame. So please forgive me and erase my shame. Thank you that you know me fully and love me fully. I want to live in your love from now on. Amen. Look up now if you want. I just want to say if you've prayed that, and for you that was a significant first time, then great news because 
you've been loved and accepted by someone who knows you and will never leave your side. And that is so liberating and such a joyful thing. And we want to help you in, in that new life. Now, I'm going to come up later on and tell you what that's going to look like. But for now, why don't we stand and we'll sing. Sing about the God who found us just as we are, empty-handed, but we can be alive in His hand. Why don't you stand and sing with us?